Well, the year was 1991. It was December 22. I was quite young at the time, and I had been asked and had the privilege of being in my cousin Doug and his fiancée Tamalyn's wedding. I was the Bible boy that day for that beautiful Christmas wedding. Now, as a five-year-old almost turning six, I had a lot of energy and had a hard time being still. When I was in grade school, they gave me a nickname. They called me Boing Boing because that's the approximate sound I made bouncing off the walls, apparently. I think Michael Moore may have given me that. Thanks, Michael. Probably not watching today, but if you ever see this, uh, thanks. <laughs> so my mom, knowing that a wedding is a wonderful thing, it's a great honor to be in a wedding, but as a young, squirmy kid, I might have a little bit of trouble being still and being dressed up in different clothes and walking at the right time. And maybe I was a little nervous because I was kind of a shy kid. And so my mom promised me, she said, once you're through with your part, you've done well, I'm going to give you something. And it was the, the most inconceivably generous gift of candy I had ever had up to that point in my young life. A whole roll of lifesavers to be dispensed of and eaten at my own time, at my own discretion. I had never had such liberties when it came to sugar before, because I grew up in a home that said, we want to eat healthy, we're going to have dessert, but it will be limited. If you're going to have lifesavers, maybe a couple of them, but certainly not a whole roll. So this was a big day. Let me show you a couple pictures here. Uh, it's uh, fun to remember. There's the beautiful Tamalyn, and, and there I am. My mom, yes, curled my hair. I don't know why. I guess it was because so, it would kind of stick out, and this was to get it to, to be rounded a little bit there. Apparently, I hadn't learned to look at the camera, because there's a couple of pictures from the official photography sessions where I'm just not looking at the camera. Here's another one. Again, I'm looking somewhere else. Um, but uh, thanks for, for sending those pic pictures to me, uh, Doug and Tamalyn and Molly. So as a little kid, while the wedding was certainly not like a difficult experience, but it was a little challenging to be still, to be good, to walk at the right time, I had the hope that kept me going forward which was the lifesavers. You know, when we have challenges in life, it is nice to have something to look forward to. I was talking to a couple of our CVCA students, and they're on, your guys are still on spring break for a couple more days, right? You know, when you're a student, and school is hard, and the days are long, spring break is fun to look forward to, right? And now, summer break. It, summer vacation, it's just around the corner. Something to look forward to. This week, we lost a couple of family members. Church family members. And so, in our grief and in the, in the pain that we're experiencing, our hearts think about the day when we'll be able to be reunited once again. 
when we see Jesus split open the sky and call forth all the sleeping saints in the grave with brand new bodies. When things are difficult, having a hope helps get you through them. It helps keep you motivated. And so we've been kind of looking at some tough things in the book of Micah which I don't apologize for because it's good for us to wrestle with these tough things. But today, we're going to get a whole lot of hope. But I want to set it up a little bit because we've already discussed how prophecy can be difficult to understand, um, particularly books like Micah and, and Isaiah, which we're just finishing in our Sabbath school quarterly. There's two types of prophecy, classical and apocalyptic. Classical are the the prophecies that were given primarily for the people in which uh, the prophet was living. They were given to the people living in that day, and the, the range, the extent of the prophecy doesn't tend to go as far into the future as apocalyptic prophecy, books like Daniel and Revelation, which deal largely with stuff at the end of time. And so, in classical prophecy, we've already discussed how there is a lot of symbolic, poetic language with complex imagery, and we're not always aware of the background historically, culturally, sociologically, theologically. And so when we just read it in a casual reading, we might come away from books like Micah and say, what? And so we've been slowing it down a little bit, trying to get into more of the background to help us have a better understanding of what's going on. But even still, commentators, theologians still wrestle. Well, what exactly did Micah mean with his words here or there? Another factor that makes prophecy tricky sometimes, classical prophecy like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, etc., is that often classical prophecy involves conditional prophecy. Now, what's conditional prophecy? Conditional prophecy is a prophecy that may change based on changing conditions and circumstances. For example, Jonah. Was he a true prophet or a false prophet? He was a true prophet. Now, but the thing he said was going to happen didn't happen. So was he a false prophet? Of course not. What was God's goal with Nineveh? God's goal was for the city to repent. And so the prophecy had its desired effect, getting people to change. God often changes his plans based upon changing circumstances. Not because God didn't know that circumstances or couldn't have known through his divine foreknowledge that circumstances may change, but God interacts with us in the present. And so he, he speaks to us the words that we need to hear now in the present so that we will change our course if it's a bad one um, or that we'll change and turn to what is right. So Jonah was not a false prophet. His prophet was con prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh was conditional. King Josiah, he was the young king, not the youngest, but he was eight years old when he started to reign. And in 2 Thess uh, Chronicles, 
chapter 34, verse 28, God said to him this. He made him a promise. He said, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Because of your faithfulness, King Josiah, you're going to be gathered to your grave, and it's going to be in peace. Well, King Josiah was stubborn. And he got this idea in his mind that he wanted to go off to battle. Even the king of Egypt, even the pharaoh said, hey, are you sure this is God's will for you to go into battle? No, 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 I'll be fine. He disguises himself as a soldier and a guy at random shoots a bow or shoots an arrow with his bow and it kills him. Now some, not understanding the conditional nature of prophecy and God's statements to us, would say, well, God lied. This statement was false. No, no, no. Had Josiah continued to walk in faithfulness, he would have gone to his grave in peace. But because he decided to walk outside of God's will for him, walk outside of that careful zone, that protective zone of obedience, now he was exposing himself to an alternate plan, Satan's plan to bring him down to the grave in war and not in peace and in a time of rebellion against God. And there are other examples that we could give, but it's important to have this in our mind. Now, some would say, well, this is just a cop-out. This is just a way for, for anything to either be fulfilled or not be fulfilled. And so how do we even know? And, and that's a pretty skeptical way to approach things. And we have to remember, what's God's purpose when he talks to us as human beings? His purpose is for us to be saved. Uh, if God's purpose was predictive accuracy in everything, then he would have done it like that. And surely the, the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible give us a lot of reason to believe and a lot of confidence. But God was concerned moreover with the big picture, trying to get his people to repent. Notice this from the book Evangelism. I'm going to put a slide here up on the screen. Sister White, in the book Evangelism, says the angels of God in their message to men represent... Sorry, okay. The angels of God in their messages to men represent time is very short. Thus, it has always been presented to me. It's true that time has continued longer than we expected in the early days of this message. Our Savior did not appear as soon as we had hoped. But has the word of God failed? Never. It should be remembered that the promises and the threatenings of God are alike. What? Conditional. Here, even Sister White recognizes, yeah, we thought Jesus was coming back sooner than he has. He, he's still not here. But that doesn't mean the promises of God have failed. When God promises something and when he threatens something, there's that condition. There's that condition. How are we going to respond to it? And an amazing example where God spells it out is right here in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18. Check it out. The instant I speak, now this is God speaking, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will do what? I will relent. That means I will change. I'll change my plan. 
of disaster that I had thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I had said would, I would benefit it. Now therefore, speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. So, very clearly, God says, if I'm planning disaster and people repent, I'm not going to bring the disaster. And if I'm planning to do something good and the people turn to evil, I can't bless them. Uh, it would embolden them in their, in their evil. And so, I've got to change plans. And again, God knows the future and he could just lay it all out for us. But in time, because we are free moral agents capable of making free decisions, God tells us what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And so with this in mind, as we approach the prophecies, uh, specifically these classical prophecies of the Old Testament, this will help us because sometimes it's downright confusing if we don't have this understanding in our mind. And let me just show you, and we talked briefly about this at Sabbath school. I'm going to put a couple more verses on the screen here. Isaiah 65. And we love these verses, and we should love these verses. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, God says. Verse 25, we, we love passages where it says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. 21 through 22, notice this. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Can you say amen to that? I am looking forward to the fulfillment of these words. But we got to read all the passage too. And we need to wrestle with all the passage because just before this, in verse 20, notice what it says. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, the child shall die after how many years? 100 years old. Praise God. In heaven, kids will only die at 100. Good news, right? We're like, hold on. Can we just read those other verses and not, not this one? The, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. So how do we understand verses like this? And there are a couple of ways we can understand them, but one way I'm suggesting to you today is this. These words spoken in Isaiah's time, Isaiah lived the same time as Micah, were given to the people of, of their day. And we are told if the people had gotten on board with God's plan, if the people had 
truly accepted justice and mercy in their lives, in their nation, through obedience, followed the Lord in all his ways, welcomed in the Messiah, accepted the Messiah, it would have been a little taste of heaven on earth before heaven comes down to earth. And so one way of understanding these passages is these are conditional prophecies that were first given to the people using prophetic language, using symbolic language. But can you imagine a nation where everybody is serving God? Nobody is stealing from one another. Nobody is robbing one another. Nobody is extorting money from the laborers in their fields. Nobody is abusing one another. Everybody is following after God. The Messiah comes. Everyone accepts the Messiah. They have faith in what he can do. Think about how amazing that would have been. And these words, they make sense. This is such a wonderful time. The old times, they hardly come to mind. Everybody gets to build a house and inhabit them. Everybody gets to enjoy the fruit of their gardens. Nobody's stealing from them. No worries about uh, marauding armies or, or vandals coming in. But obviously we know that's not how it went. The people didn't do that, and quite frankly, neither have we. So what do you do with a conditional prophecy that doesn't have its fulfillment? Well, thankfully, our God is able to still bring about fulfillment of his words. Uh, and we see through his church uh, a, a progressive fulfillment of these words. One day, which will be completely fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, sometimes people have tried to make these words make sense by saying, oh, well, this is re in reference to the millennial kingdom where Christ comes down to the earth and he reigns on the earth for a thousand years. It's a time of peace and prosperity. And it sounds great, but the only problem is that's not how the millennium works. Uh, at the millennium, all the righteous are in heaven with God. And the earth, if you've read Revelation, it's basically uninhabitable after the time of the second coming of Jesus. I was doing Bible study with someone just this last week, and they were reading about the, the, the hailstones that Revelation talks about. Eighty pounds, these hailstones. Can you imagine the destruction of something like that? And you know, one simple way to know what happens during the millennium is by thinking about the famous words in John chapter 14. John 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. Now, where was the Father's house when Jesus spoke those words? Yeah, it was up in heaven, wherever heaven is, exactly. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. So I'm going to my Father's house, which is not here, to prepare a place for you. Notice, Jesus did not walk into the temple and start fixing some apartments there, the literal temple in Jerusalem, right? People are, are looking. They're saying, oh, the red heifer has been, they've, they've got the red heifer, and they're, they're getting ready to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, literal Israel. 
They're misunderstanding the words of these prophecies, just like the disciples misunderstood the mission of Christ when he came the first time. But these principles of conditional prophecy and progressive fulfillment are very, very helpful. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus very clearly said, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back and take you away so that you can be in that place I've prepared for you. So the words in Isaiah, the words we're going to study here now in Micah chapter 4, are not talking about a thousand years of peace here on this earth. Um, it was a conditional prophecy that sadly was not fulfilled in its time, but I believe prog progressively will be more and more fulfilled through the grace and mercy of God. So having had that as our introduction, let's open up to Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to start off by talking about the mountain of Messiah. The mountain of Messiah. We've been looking at bad news. Well, now we get some good news. Just peek back at the bad news here. Micah 3, verse 12. Micah 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion, Jerusalem. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall be heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like bare hills of a forest. Devastating words to hear. But remember, God wants to give hope to the hopeless. He wants to talk about the glory of during the gloom. And so we see here, Micah chapter 4, things totally shift. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Now these words are actually almost identical to the words in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And there's debate about if one copied the other or, or there was a third source or maybe just the same Holy Spirit that was teaching both of them and they worked in the same time period, gave them the same message. But it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now that phrase, latter days, can be understood differently. That exact Hebrew phrase is used also in places like Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 verse 1 Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Uh, Jacob was not giving a prophecy about the final events of Earth's history. He was saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the days to come. Down the road a little bit. Or Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, Moses' last address to the people. He uses the same phrase, and it's used in the sense of the days to come. And so it makes sense that, that these words here also may not be exclusively for the last days, but rather um, what God's people could become in the near future through faithfulness and obedience to him. In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house. Now, which mountain is that? That's Mount Moriah, right there, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It says, this mountain 
shall be established on top of the mountains. Now, it's not the highest mountain. There are higher mountains in that region. But it's talking about a raising to prominence. And it shall be exalted over all the hills. And many and peoples shall flow to it. This is a gathering, a gathering of the nations, of the Gentiles, people coming to the mountain of the Lord's house. Now, this is a, quite the contrast because we just read the end of chapter 3 where, where God said, I'm going to plow this mountaintop. The temple is going to be annihilated. It's going to be like just a bare hilltop. And now God's saying, but wait, there's a day coming when it's going to be exalted and raised up. There's hope ahead. Hang on. Stick with me. Verse 2, many nations shall come to it and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isn't this wonderful? This image of people being converted to worshiping the true God, the law going forth, the, the teachings about God going forth, Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples, the Messiah, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. That, a plowshare is like the, the tip of the, it's like the blade of a plow, or it's, it also has been used as a, kind of a pickaxe, uh, adds. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. We don't need weapons anymore, we need agriculture. And spears into pruning hooks, a type of curved blade, a sickle. How are you going to get those fruits off of the upper part of the tree? Well, you use your spear that's been converted into a pruning hook. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That sounds like a wonderful time, doesn't it? You can see how these words would have given hope and inspiration to a people who are about to go into captivity. Verse 4, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. They weren't going to worry about people coming and stealing their produce. Remember in the time of Gideon, how they, they hid grain certain places because the, the marauding raiders of other nations would come through and just take all their food, take their stuff. And so these images here talk about permanence, stability. It takes a while for, for fruit to come to fruition, these types of plants and trees, vines. God says, you're not going to be afraid. Verse 5, and now a bit of a shift in tone. For all people walk in each, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of our Lord, the Lord our God, forever and ever. Yes, there's this future day when people will come to the Lord. Right now, people are just walking in whatever God's name they want, but we, we're going to stick with God. And I believe that these words would have been fulfilled in ancient Israel had they abided by that last part. We will walk in the name of our Lord our God forever. Notice uh, the next section, 
restoring a remnant. Verse 6, in that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcasts, and those who I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. God's saying, I'm going to gather those of you that are lame, those of you that have disabilities, those of you that have problems, the outcasts, you're going to be a, a, a nation. You're going to be a part of this, a strong nation. And we see what Christ wanted to do. You know, when he came to this world and he walked on the streets, he spent so much time among those who were the lame, who were the outcasts, gathering them to him, healing them. It just makes you wonder what might have been. Remember, even in his hometown, he couldn't do many miracles because of unbelief. What if everybody had accepted and welcomed him? What could he have done? Verse 9. We move from distress to deliverance here. Again, kind of going back to the, more of their present situation and their, their future difficult situation. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Thinking about perhaps when they would go into captivity and they would have no king. Uh, these difficult situations. But look at verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. Their journey to Babylon is going to be difficult. Sleeping in the fields on their long trek to Babylon. And to Babylon you shall go. But then he gets back to hope again. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Pivoting again quickly from gloom to glory. Yes, you're going to have to go to captivity. Yes, you're going to have to go to Babylon. But even there, I'm going to deliver you. He doesn't want them to become despondent and hopeless and just throw up their hands and say, well, what good is it? He gives them hope. Something will deliver them. That Hebrew word for God delivering them is that Hebrew word goel, the kinsman redeemer, the, 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 the function that Boaz fulfilled in the wonderful story of Ruth. And what Jesus typified so well, coming down as nearest of kin to rescue us from the hand of our oppressor. Moving on to verses 13, 12, 11 through 13. We go now to a future time, and we go from siege to success. Notice how God portrays this. He says, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like the sheaves of the threshing floor. This is perhaps pointing forward to Having returned from captivity, the other nations wanting to attack them and do evil against them, but God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to protect them. Verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, uh, your power strong, 
and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. God's saying, hey, there will be troubles, but if you stick with me, I'll make you strong. I will give you victory over your enemies. Picture how good it will be with you and me together. God, in their gloom, was giving them pictures and glimpses of glory. I can't help but think about our own lives here today. If God was willing to do that for the people back then, does he do the same for us? Have you ever had consequences from your own mistakes that you're dealing with in the present? You've thought about your failures and your sins and and things that just are unavoidable that you have to deal with because of your mistakes. God doesn't want to leave us in that moment of failure. He constantly gives us promises in his word to point us forward to better days, to remind us that now, right now, we are forgiven. We accept what he's done for us. He's already forgiven us, paid it forward. Has God left us with hope? Absolutely. We may be experiencing captivity of our own making, but God doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to to deliver us. He's got a plan. And as we close, I just want to remind us of some of these glorious promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. You may not see yourself like this, but God has the ability to see us as we might be and can be in him. Just like the nation of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they were not that glorious land that we talked about. They were not that glorious people, but God saw them as they could become. And, and we have seen glimpses of that, but we, we didn't see the full fulfillment of that. But we can see what God can do and will do in our lives. If we're in Him, we're a new creation. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Romans 8.37, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You may feel like a failure, but in Jesus we are more than conquerors. I don't know what that is. If you conquer, isn't that good enough? God says, no, 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 you're more than that. More than that. Jude 24 and 25, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You may be stumbling over and over again, but God sees you for how you can be in him. And he's going to help keep picking you back up as long as you're willing and helping you move forward in him. And finally, Revelation 21, verse 4, God someday will wipe all tears away from our eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It may be gloomy now, but God has some glorious things planned for us. 
we can't change the people not accepting the message or the Messiah in the past, but we can change how we relate to the Messiah today. And day by day, we will be more like him and more glorious until we see him face to face someday in his glory. I want to walk with him. How about you? That's your desire? Boy, I can't wait for it. We've got a couple more chapters here, and it's just getting better and better. Let's pause and pray and talk to our great God. Dear Father, we're sinners. We mess up a lot, but we are so thankful, Jesus, that 2,000 years ago on that cross, you died for us. And, and even before the world was founded, you committed to saving each one of us. And when you promise and commit to something, it's as good as done. So Lord, thank you for seeing us not as we deserve all the time. It's important to help us remember uh, to hold on to you, but thank you for seeing us as we might become, as we can be. We haven't arrived yet, Lord, but we want to keep on striving, moving forward, running the race with the endurance that you give us day by day until we walk and run and you carry us into your kingdom, that wonderful kingdom of glory. Keep us in your will, keep us in your love, and use us for your cause today and this week in Jesus' name. Let everybody say, Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.